Welcome to Suddenly I'm a Leader, the podcast. I'm Ann Davis, RACGP, New South Wales and ACT Faculty Manager. My guest today is Dr Michael Wright, a Future Leaders alumnus, and he's going to share with us his experiences of coping with change and the challenges of change resistance. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. My pleasure, Anne. Thanks for having me along. Michael, throughout your career, you've had many different roles. I'm interested in if your experience of change has differed between these roles, and if so, in what way? The short answer is yes, but I suppose the longer answer is if I take it back to my work as a GP, that's actually where I've got the most experience in implementing change and influencing change. So, for instance, in a patient who wants to give up smoking or someone who I wanted to encourage to give up smoking, the sort of behavioural intervention techniques that I use there are things that I use more broadly in other areas of change. So for instance, with a patient, I need to work out, are they ready to give up smoking? You know, so what's their motivation? What are the options? What might work for them? And what do I do if they've got no interest in change? And so I think I take a similar approach with other areas of my work. So if it's advocating on behalf of the RACGP or advocating to funders or other bits of the health system, it's great to know that I've actually feel quite experienced in all of that. I just need to apply it in different ways, you know, whether they be advocacy, clinical, academic or representative. I suppose the main difference though is that with the non-GP interventions, often it involves multiple people. And I think it's probably the important thing I try to do initially is work out what role I have in that situation. So am I providing information? Am I trying to lead the change? Or am I just being a support there? It's an interesting mental process to go through, isn't it? In that it is a change, but what's my role in that change? I mean, I think once you've got multiple people involved, then I think you have to work out who are the people you need to prioritise on and work out what might motivate them. I'm actually interested in that because one of the ways of facilitating change is understanding what each of the other key stakeholders motivators are and what they're trying to achieve and it's about understanding their influence is not just on the decision but also on how that decision might be implemented as well so I think that it's interesting. It's actually a bit like you know you talk about the stages of grief similarly we talk about the stages of change and in change theory, there's this idea of the change curve that people go through sort of stages of shock, denial, anger, depression before final acceptance, you know, just like the grief cycle. And it's important to know in yourself if that change is affecting you, where you fit into that cycle, but also how it affects the other people who the change is impacting on. And then I think you then look at different ways to support those people depending on where they are in that change cycle. And I guess any change does evoke feelings in each person. And I guess change is mostly when we move from an area of comfort into an uncomfortable space. And so I think each of us will have different feelings depending on the context and what the actual change is. But could you describe how that feels for you? Look, I think discomfort's probably a good way to describe it, but I think change also brings uncertainty. And I think once again, as a GP, I think we're pretty good dealing with uncertainty. You know, we make lots of decisions when we don't have every result, every test, and a lot of it's based on 
our assessment of the situation. And I think that that's a reasonable place to start. But also as GPs, we regularly reassess. And so we then look at the situation again after we might have implemented something and then sort of take another temperature check of how it might have worked. And I think similarly, that's the type of thing that I do when I'm trying to influence change in other settings. And often one of the skills as a leader is learning to deal with that ambiguity that you've just described and making those decisions when you don't have that perfect knowledge. I think, as I said, we're taught to recognise these sort of red flags and the danger things. And then the other areas we're able to think we can give this a little bit more time until a bit more information reveals itself. And as long as we're pointing in the right direction, we're probably not going to get on the rocks, so to speak. So I'm thinking now a little bit more about your leadership roles, like with the PHN or with the college, because leading change carries that expectation from followers. Could you talk a little bit more about how you communicate that change process when you're leading people through the change? I mentioned the change curve, and I think that's one definite way to consider it is work out where you would think most people will be. You know, will they be surprised? Will they be angry about this? Will they be disappointed about it? And there are different ways to approach at different points. So, for instance, initially, you might be wanting to give people just some information about what the process is. Although when they're angry, there's really no point in giving them information because it's a bit like red flag to a bull. But then if you have people who are downright resenting and will be unable to take part in the change, then I think that's where the difficult part comes when then sometimes you have to encourage people to not be involved. And so that's probably one of the hardest bits is trying to recognise who are the people who just can't go with this change. And then is your role to say, well, look, this is the direction that we're heading in. And if you can't accept it, then it's going to make us difficult to work together. And we might have other areas that we can work together, but this issue, I think we'll have to disagree. But I think at that point, you also need to reassure people is, look, we're going to keep monitoring this. We're going to look to see what the impact of this is and be prepared to change our minds. And so that's the other bit is that as we get more data and more evidence, sometimes we do change opinions and impressions. And being willing to accept that change, I think, is also important. And that would be very much when you're dealing with government and you're looking at those more strategic policy changes, I would think, when you don't have all the information and the environment is changing as well. That's what I mean. Like in that situation particularly, there will be some proposals which are just unacceptable and you need to be able to say, look, I can't work with that as much as I don't expect you to work with another proposal. So, I mean, that at least frames the change process within some certain boundaries. The other tip I look at is with the people who you're trying to influence. And we do this a lot in stakeholder engagement. I think it's often worthwhile working out who are the people who are most important for your change. And you often break it up into like a two by two table of rank people according to their power. So whether how much influence they have over whatever your change might be and what their interest is. So whether they are really interested and engaged in it or not. This is a thing often used in management technique, which is just called a power influence grid. And it's often a good way to kind of rank where you should focus your energies on. So for someone who's high power and high interest, you really want to engage with them, consult with them and keep them on side. 
Whereas if you have people who they're still interested, but they have lower power, you really just want to inform them, but you don't want to spend as much time in the change process dealing with them because they're on board. So you really want to focus the sort of the paper people who it's going to have the highest influence on, but who also have the highest power in the decision-making process. And so that's using your time and influence most effectively, isn't it? Yeah, just targeting yourself because, you know, you can only spread yourself so thinly. And often those what we call the low power people, but the interest, they can be your advocates and certainly will help at rolling your change idea out. But they're not the ones who are there right at the most difficult points. So a good tip is to just sit down with that grid and actually map out which organisations, which people are in each of the quadrants. Yeah, look, it's a simple thing, but it really does help you to focus on who are the people who are going to be your strongest allies, but potentially be your biggest problems in getting a change to happen. I think it's quite a useful tool. And we can provide a link in the show notes to that as well. The other resource which I find really interesting, there's a bit of work being done at Harvard where they talk about collaborative leadership and collaborative change. And they talk about VUCAs, which are volatile, uncertain, complex and anonymous organisations. And there's a professor there, her name's Heidi Gardner. And it's just interesting, if you want to read a bit more about this idea of introducing change in a collaborative way, I think it's a really good read. Excellent. So how do you know when you've achieved change successfully? Well, I suppose, look, you know, going back to the giving up smoking example, the simplest way to gauge success is to ask. So you've got to find out, have people given up smoking? And if they haven't, that doesn't mean it's a failure. I mean, you might have motivated them further to consider it and they're potentially closer to giving up. So it's not just a simple metric, you know, with multiple people, multiple actors, you really need to collect data and analyse. You know, you need to ask people what their experience of the change has been and then also look at the impact of the change. You know, for instance, say you're opening a new service at your practice, you want to know how many people have attended that new service what's been the impact of that service on their health or say their blood pressure control or their diabetes control, but also how has it impacted on the workflow further in the organisation. And I suppose the thing about achieving change successfully is it's never really a finite thing. There's always more change and change might not always be for the better. And the only way you can work out if things might not be changing for the better is to keep monitoring them. So I guess what I'm hearing is that when you're making the change that you need to have a clear idea of what that change looks like. But then I like the combination where you've talked about quantitative but also qualitative feedback to just see whether you have affected that change. Yeah, I mean, and I think previously in general practice, we've talked things about quality improvement cycles. And certainly you do think of change as a cycle in that you need to initially work out what the issue is, work out who the stakeholders are, implement your change, but then you've got to monitor the effect of it and then go around the loop again. That's right. So just a last question, because the people listening to this podcast will be wanting your best tips drawing on your experiences, what tips would you have for GPs who do want to create change? I suppose the first thing is remember that you are experienced in change and change management every day in general practice, even if you don't know what the terminology is. And just remember those techniques that you use for behavioural interventions, but at a higher level, 
Secondly, I'd say, you know, do think of the people affected. Who are your stakeholders? Do the power interest grid assessment so you can work out where you should focus your energy. Look at the change curve. And as I said, depending on where people are, you have different interventions and they're more likely to succeed. And I suppose remember that change never stops. So that uncertainty feeling, we just try and become a bit more comfortable with it, but recognise it. We have to recognise that it's certainly not a great feeling, but we just need to recognise the importance of it. And I think doing that and being equipped well, you'll make better decisions and manage them better. And I guess too that even though we may sit upon a path for a change, it may not work for reasons outside of our sphere of influence, but to celebrate the work that has been done just in that trying and looking at things differently. It's an interesting point you make, Anne, because, I mean, there are some of these issues that we've been talking in general practice in the college for 20 years, you know, things like introducing telehealth. And it's only when a number of different things converge that often the policy changes. There's a school of theory, which is called Kingdon's model, which he talks about these three streams of policy that, you know, you have a problem, you have a policy solution, and then you also need the politics. And you basically have to wait till they all converge before things change. So, you know, GPs have been saying, look, telehealth would be great for patient flexibility. This is how you could increase it. But when there wasn't any political will to introduce it, it wasn't happening. But then when the pandemics come, there has become this imperative and the politicians have been aware that, you know, the college has been very supportive of this idea. So having that policy ready means it could then take action. Whereas if we didn't have the policy ready to go, it wouldn't impact on the policy. So you kind of feel like sometimes you're hitting your head against a brick wall that this policy isn't being adopted. But give it time. And I think having the policy ready to go is important. And so that's where your leadership skills of actually being able to identify, okay, this is the time. We've already had the preparation, but we need to do it and we need to do it now because it's politically right to do it. Yeah, I suppose the challenge with that is that's one of the issues with an organisation like the RACGP is having that corporate memory, I suppose, of, you know, what have we come up with before and not losing track of ideas and policies that we've thought of 10 years ago because their time still may come. Michael, thank you. This has been really interesting. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Anne. Good to speak to you. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Please see the show notes for the next Suddenly I'm a Leader webinar plus the links that Michael has referred to. And just a leadership quote to finish. The pessimist complains about the wind. The optimist expects it to change. The leader adjusts the sails. Till next time, goodbye.